This is an ABC podcast. Good morning. Welcome to AM. It's Monday the 30th of October. I'm Sabra Elaine, coming to you from Nipaluna, Hobart. The Israel Defence Force says its fighter jets have hit 450 Hamas targets, including operational command centres, in the past 24 hours. The United Nations Secretary-General, Antonio Guterres, says the world's witnessing a humanitarian catastrophe. He says more than two million people have nowhere to go and are being denied the essentials for life. Meanwhile, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is under increasing pressure over his handling of the crisis. Some of the people protesting against him are family members of hostages taken in the Hamas attacks on October the 7th. This woman, Reoma Kadem, lost her daughter and three grandchildren in the attack. How long will we continue this bloodshed? Until when? What else? Tomorrow your children, their grandchildren. Where? Why? There is a cancer inside the body of this country. If this man gets off the hook, we won't have a solution. We won't have an existence. We won't have rehabilitation. He destroys and he destroyed the individuals as well as the community. Benjamin Netanyahu has retracted and apologised for criticising his intelligence chiefs on social media, but he maintains they never warned him Hamas was planning wide-scale attacks. Our Global Affairs Editor John Lyons is in Ashdod in southern Israel. Sabra, well, the ground offensive has in effect begun. Although the Israelis aren't necessarily using that term, they went in their third incursion and have stayed in there. So a lot of Israeli tanks have gone in, a lot of soldiers on the ground, and they have been inside Gaza with Hamas positions, um, and there's been a lot of crossfire, and the Israeli army is now going to stay inside Gaza. They're not coming back out as they have over the last two incursions. So fighting on the ground has now begun seriously inside Gaza. The United Nations says that thousands of people have broken into aid warehouses in Gaza to take food and basic hygiene products. What is the UN saying about those incidents? Well, the UN is saying that it suggests a real desperation. Virtually no food, water or medicine or fuel has gone in there for three weeks. Israel imposed a complete blockade. There's been a small number of aid trucks have gone in, but only a fraction of what would be needed on any given day. So for the 2.3 million people inside Gaza, most of them have not received any food or any water or anything now for going on three weeks. It's clearly a desperate situation both in terms of food, water, plus the hospital system is is crushed, being crushed under the weight of demand. And so the UN is basically saying the desperate people have tried to break in and steal flour, etc. So the humanitarian crisis is getting worse all the time. The Israeli Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, posted a message on what's now known as X, putting the blame on Israel's security chiefs for the Hamas attack on October the 7th. And he accepted no responsibility himself, apparently. How has that statement gone down with the Israelis? Well, the Israeli media almost across the board now has begun writing exposés and reconstructions of how they believe Mr Netanyahu took his eye off the security ball. For the last year or so, of course, Israel has been convulsed by demonstrations, hundreds of thousands of people against the, the changes to the judicial system that Mr Netanyahu was pushing, essentially to take away the independence of the Supreme Court. Now, the Israeli media is 
stories every day uh, right across the spectrum from the left to the right of the Israeli media with exposés saying that he, because he was focused on that, he took his eye off the security situation and they're quoting meetings that he had with members of his own Likud party where they said to him, we think Hamas on the southern border is an increasing problem. And in fact, they say that Mr. Netanyahu several times said, no, that is not true. They have been deterred because there had not been many rockets coming for two years or so from Hamas in Gaza. Now, what it appears is that that whole time Hamas was in fact preparing for this operation. And the Israeli investigative reporters are reporting that, in fact, Hamas operatives, knowing that they were probably being listened to by Israeli intelligence, were sending out messages that we've gone past the rocket thing, we're not going to be attacking Israel anymore. And it appears that the Israeli leadership was lulled into a false sense of security about the situation with Hamas. John, and it's important to point out that he's subsequently withdrawn that tweet and apologised. What about getting independently verified information about how many casualties and what's actually happening in Gaza? It's difficult to know for sure. Of course, President Biden has questioned the numbers in terms of casualties, but the Gaza Ministry of Health, which is run by Hamas, has therefore, in response to President Biden, released the actual names and ID details, dates of birth and everything, of every person who's been killed. They say more than 8,000 people have been killed and they've now got on the internet a list of all of their IDs. Now, other organisations, the UN and others, are monitoring and looking at the figures out of Gaza, but it appears it's pretty clear that the number of casualties and people injured is growing dramatically by the day. That's our Global Affairs Editor, John Lyons, in Ashdod in southern Israel. Australia's Foreign Minister is Penny Wong, and she joined me earlier. Foreign Minister, thanks for joining AM. The Israeli Prime Minister says this conflict is Israel's second war of independence. How concerned are you that this war will spread beyond Gaza? That's one of the concerns we've had from day one, is the possibility of this spilling over into the region. It's why I've spent a great deal of time engaging uh, with others in the region uh, um, and uh, beyond, because obviously, if there is spillover, that matters to civilians in the region, it matters to the countries of the region. I would also say to Israel, it matters to Israeli security. Is what we're seeing right now proportionate to what Hamas extremists did on October the 7th? I'm certainly deeply concerned, as so many people are, by the loss of life. Uh, and the destruction and loss of life in Gaza uh, is something that uh, I think the international community is deeply concerned about, just as we were horrified by uh, the brutal terrorist attack of Hamas uh, and uh, the continuing holding of hostages, uh, which we see. What I would say is we've said many times uh, that how Israel conducts this war matters. It has a right to defend itself, but the way it does so matters, and we've called for the protection of civilian lives. How many Australians are still stuck in Gaza, and what is the government doing to try and get them out? We have uh, 88 Australians and families, so that's citizens, uh, those on visas and uh, and family members. Uh, And we have been working... Uh, since this conflict began to try and uh, get them out of Gaza. We're in the same situation, uh, very sadly, that 
every other nation with foreign nationals is with in terms of foreign nationals in Gaza. There has not been exit permitted. We have been engaging with the Israelis, with uh, the Egyptians, with others to try and assist uh, or ensure that the Rafa crossing, which is the crossing uh, which would be enable people to exit, uh, uh, is opened. Unfortunately, despite the best efforts, not just of this government, but uh, the Americans and many others, uh, that crossing has not yet uh, been opened. Are Australians coming home quickly enough from Lebanon? The department seemed a bit frustrated that people aren't returning in the numbers they'd like to see. Do you share that concern? Uh, look, I, I do. I do. And I understand uh, that people have lives in Lebanon, that many Australians have, uh, are living there. But what I would say to, to, to all of you now, our concern is that if armed conflict increases, it could affect wider areas of Lebanon. It could close Beirut Airport. So the government's advice is that Australians in Lebanon should leave now while commercial flights remain available. Um, the, 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 the reality is if we see a deterioration in the security situation, uh, if there is armed conflict, obviously government will always do its best, uh, but the government may not be able to to assist everyone who wishes to leave, to leave. Has bipartisanship broken down on Israel? Mr Dutton always wants to find difference. He always wants to make political points, and it does say something about this man, uh, that in the midst of this conflict, with this loss of life, uh, after he voted for a bipartisan motion moved by the Prime Minister in the House, that he still wants to make, uh, find uh, political points to make. I mean, we're, we're focused on uh, you know, what, what is really happening here. Uh, we've seen a terrorist attack. We've seen, we, we, we've seen hostages taken and we are seeing continued loss of life. That's the focus we, we are taking. Would you like a bipartisan approach? I would always prefer that on foreign policy. I would always prefer uh, you know, there not to be domestic differences made. I think it is, uh, it is not the, the, the right thing for the country. I think we should be looking to national interest. And I think also there are so many Australians who are rightly distressed by what is happening in the Jewish community, uh, in our Islamic communities, Palestinian communities. This is a very, very difficult time for many in Australia. It's not the time for Mr Dutton to be playing politics but I'm not sure he knows anything else. The US National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan says that Israel should be taking every possible means to distinguish between Hamas terrorists and who are legitimate military targets and civilians who are not. US obviously has concerns. Well, I, I think Jake's words are precisely the same position as I'm articulating. You know, we, we, we do think it's, it's critical for Israel to ensure it does everything it can to protect civilian lives and to protect, uh, to respect international humanitarian law. The Prime Minister is off to China shortly. Will this mean that relations have normalised? Look, we've said for a long time we wanted a more stable relationship with China. I don't think it was good for the country, the, the very political, domestically political approach that Scott Morrison took. Uh, we know that there are things on which we, will, we, we can cooperate. We also know there are things on which we are going to disagree. Uh, and part, what we have to do is continue to manage uh, this relationship, including the differences we have wisely. Uh, part of that is engagement. That's, that's why it's important for the Prime Minister to go. And uh, he's, he, we're very pleased that that visit will take place. Penny Wong, thanks for talking to AM. 
Good to speak with you. The Northern Territory government's facing criticism for paying private security firms to patrol streets in Darwin. Some experts are calling it a form of private policing and are questioning whether the practice is lawful. Four Corners investigations uncovered a violent altercation involving one of the patrols as well as other worrying incidents involving the companies running them. National Indigenous Affairs reporter Brooke Fryer filed this report. It's just before midnight along Darwin Smith Street Mall. An Aboriginal man is on the ground following an altercation. A group of private security guards dressed in bright blue uniforms is standing over him. A friend of the man on the ground starts filming. You do it, you do it. As his auntie approaches the guards in protest, one of them pushes her. She falls heavily backwards, hitting her head on the ground. There you go. I got it. I got it on a video. Moments later, the elderly woman is dragged roughly by both arms across the pavement. This happens several times as she tries to comfort her nephew on the ground. And I'm taking it to the main office. That's my auntie. This government-funded patrol unit, known as City Safe, has been operating since 2019 and is described in confidential council documents as a system of quasi-law and order. The company behind the patrol, Territory Protective Services, is among a handful of government-backed private security firms paid to work on Darwin streets in response to the Territory's high rates of crime. Last year, more than 10,000 assaults were reported to police. It's private policing because they are doing the work of police, but they're not employed by the state, they're not accountable. Law professor Thalia Anthony from the University of Technology, Sydney, has researched the expansion of private security in Australia. She says the Darwin security patrols are unique and the legal basis for their operation is uncertain. To do the work of police on the beat, I think is taking it to a new level. I feel like here it is policing. Confidential government data obtained through Freedom of Information reveals that in June alone, public patrols moved on 283 people. There's no law that enables them to move on people. The laws relating to move on are to be administered by the police. Another patrol, known as the Public Order Response Unit, works Darwin's outer suburbs in a marked SUV, accompanied by a security dog and dressed in stab vests. The company that runs it, Neptune NT, also provides security at suburban shopping centres. But Neptune NT has a troubling record in its private security work. Four Corners has unearthed CCTV showing a Neptune NT security guard pursuing Jessalyn Punjili across a car park at the Karama shopping plaza towards a bus stop. As soon as I got to the bus stop, here I just seen a big fist coming right at me. I was scared, yeah. He's bigger than me. The guard responsible for hitting the Pepper Minardi woman in the face in broad daylight was Christian McLean. As I've gotten her to the bus stop, she spat everywhere and I've absolutely snapped. I've just walked over and I've hit her. Christian McLean says security guards get two weeks of training. We're just chucked to do what police should be doing. You're a sitting duck. The shopping centre and licensing NT didn't respond to questions from Four Corners. Neither did Neptune NT nor Territory Protective Services. The Northern Territory government says security guards must be licensed and there are checks and balances in place. 
Brooke Fryer there, and you can see Brooke's report, Four Corners Tonight, on ABC TV, 8.30, or on ABC's iView. The gender pay gap at every large employer in Australia will be publicly released for the first time in coming months. But at a traditionally blokey company, fuel refiner and supplier Viva Energy, they've halved their gap in recent years and they want other businesses to follow. Daniel Ziffer reports. Viva Energy has typically had a male-dominated workforce in refineries, a service station network and making things like industrial grease. But that's not all it's been doing. By making its workplace more attractive to women and changing policies to retain them at all levels, it has a gender pay gap less than half the national average, something that's important to CEO Scott Wyatt. I don't particularly like the outcomes that I see for women uh, in our company and and in the country generally from a um, an equity point of view. It's material, it's, it's, it's important to people. Four years ago, fewer than 10% of the staff at its refinery in Geelong in Victoria were women. Now, it's more than a quarter. You know, I see that when I go to site, like it's a big change, like because it's a physical change, right? You can actually, you can actually see it when you're there and it drives, it drives a better culture, it drives better outcomes over the long run. Nationally, programs to reduce the gender pay gap are working but too slowly. The gender pay gap is created by factors like gender-dominated industries, women being more likely to have time out of the workforce to care for others, and the history of gender discrimination against women. It's currently 22.8%, meaning for every $1 a man makes, women earn, on average, 77.2 cents. Over a lifetime, that's an immense disadvantage. Associate Professor Ashtig Mavaskalian of Curtin University has investigated the factors that help companies bridge the gap. A lot of it comes down to rigid cultural norms that have been there over time and institutional changes make a big role in changing the cultural norms. Essentially, employers that take serious long-term action get results. That means measures like pay audits, policies to support carers and flexible work. Best performing businesses go beyond analysing the data. What they do is to act on the analysis by having tangible action plans in place. For almost a decade, businesses have had to report their gender pay gap to a government agency. They've received information on where they rank in their industry and how to improve. But because that hasn't really moved the dial, Early next year, the Workplace Gender Equality Agency will be publishing the pay gaps of every business with more than 100 workers, meaning almost 5 million workers will learn whether what their company says and does lines up. This is about trying to unpick the fabric of discrimination and disadvantage that's perhaps held women back. So looking at things like who gets access to overtime, what type of arrangements are in place for flexible work and caring responsibilities. Victoria's former Human Rights and Equal Opportunity Commissioner, Kristen Hilton, works with companies trying to reduce the gender pay gap. Organisations care what people think and by being by showing that you are owning the issue, and that you're being transparent about what your gap is and what you're doing to solve it is good from a reputational corporate point of view. Viva Energy's Scott Wyatt says the changes will keep being pushed but now have their own momentum. He wants other companies to get on board. You know, I think for some organisations it'll be, it'll be confronting and challenging and I think that's a good thing because it forces the conversations in the boardrooms and executive teams about all... Well, do we care about this? And if we do, what are we going to do to uh, to fix it? Fever Energy, Scott Wyatt, ending that report by Daniel Ziffer. That's AM for today. Thanks for your company. I'm Sabra Lane.
Hey, I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily Podcast. As you try to understand the conflict between Israel and Hamas, you'd be forgiven for being confused. Today, a senior researcher at the investigative journalist group Bellingcat, Kalina Koltai, on how misinformation is spreading in the fog of war and what to do to avoid it. Look for the ABC News Daily Podcast on the ABC Listener. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.